Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I am your host, Aaron Erber. This is a podcast about stories, myths, and the Catholic faith. Hey everybody, welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. Uh, this is your host, Aaron Erber, and today I have Susanna Black um, on, and she is going to talk about a recent article she wrote called The Birth of Comedy on Mere Orthodoxy. Um, and she is the senior editor at Plow and, uh, and at Mere Orthodoxy. And Susanna, welcome to the show, and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, Aaron, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a journalist. I am a senior editor at Plow Quarterly um, and also at Near Orthodoxy, uh, where the piece appeared. Um, let's see, I don't know. My husband and I split our time between New York City and England. He's English, um, and uh, I was let's I. I about it <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually it's your name is Susanna Black Roberts right yes. okay yeah. yes yeah because you recently got married so congratulations <laughs> to you <laughs> you got married last year yeah that's that's awesome um that's always a good thing marriage marriage is a wonderful thing and yeah. um it's probably the core of creation honestly <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you wrote this article and you actually sent it to me and you said that <laughs> I was I was the target audience for this which was <laughs> really funny um because this is it, it really does fit in with the themes of the show uh mythology and um well christianity and, and and all that stuff so why don't you so the, the article is called the birth of comedy and it came out in mere orthodoxy and i think it came out just a couple days ago um and i have it's long i've read through it twice um i read through it once on my phone while i was waiting for my kids to fall asleep and I'm like, okay this is awesome this is really good but i was like kind of only half paying attention because i was exhausted um and so then at last night I read through it again and I made more notes. Um, and so it's, you kindly broke it up into different sections <laughs> and that makes it easy for me with my short attention span, you know, to go through it. So why don't you tell us what the article is about? Um, and I guess what, what mere orthodoxy is, uh, as a publication, um, you can tell us about plow if you want to, um, and just kind of, just kind of jump in. Okay, sure. Um, well, okay, let's start with Plow, um, just to sort of get that covered. I, it's a magazine that was founded about 100 years ago um, by uh, Eberhard Arnold, who was also the founder of the Bruderhof. It's published by the Bruderhof, which is an Anabaptist communi- Christian community, um, of which I'm not a member. I'm an Anglican, um, but they let me edit anyway. Um, it's a quarterly journal of uh, theology and culture and um literature and, and that sort of thing. Um, Mere Orthodoxy, where the piece was published, is a, it's only recently become a print magazine. Um, it's been operating as a really kind of intensive blog slash online magazine for more than 10 years now. Um, it was founded by Matthew Lee Anderson, and it's now edited by Jake Meador. Hmm. Um, or he's the editor-in-chief, and I'm kind of like uh, another editor, miscellaneously I don't do as much for it as I should. Um, but one of the wonderful things about it is that when I come up with a 13,000 word, uh, you know, screed talking about how the gospel is the fulfillment of Greek myth as well as Greek philosophy, uh, 
Jake does not say that's psychotic. Absolutely, I apologize, <laughs> but instead says, "Sure." Psychotic? No way. Yeah. That's like that's what it's all about. This is this is this is what I'm all about, man. This is great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was it was long. It was uh, it is long, and um, it's a bit ridiculously long. But whatever, I wrote it until I was done. So. <laughs> well, part of what makes it so interesting is that. Um, we can get into like the the meat and potatoes about what it's about, but you you kind of intersperse like poetry in there too. So you quote very heavily from like, the Odyssey, and um, Algernon Swinburne, and um, uh, 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 what's his name, William Blake, um, and other 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 poets that I'm not familiar with because <laughs> I'm not as well read as I should be. But um, yeah, that's what makes it, it kind of it kind of breaks it up and it kind of like highlights certain points that you're making. Um, especially yeah. like with Algernon Swinburne, who's kind of like the opposite of um, Homer in a lot of ways. Uh, and I know you you are a fan. This is, this is the obligatory Tim Powers reference um, <laughs> for the show. You're you're I know you're a fan of Tim Powers, and he yeah. act- in um, uh, Hide Me Among the Graves, he actually has Algernon Swinburne as a character. Um, oh, gosh, I forgot about that. Yeah, okay. yeah, and along with other pre-Raphaelite um, uh, poets and uh, paint like the like the Rossetti family and stuff. And Algernon Swinburne becomes a vampire and uh, kind of, he kind of becomes enthralled to them. Um, and he's just like this perverted guy. <laughs> and uh, Tim Powers is very much, you know, clear that, yeah, this guy, in his life, he was kind of a cad, you know. <laughs> and you can see it in his whole, like, philosophy and stuff and his poetry. It's very, very, it's very entertaining in, in novel form. So, um, but yeah, so you're you're primarily in this in this essay you're primarily addressing this kind of online movement of like neo-pagan sort of right-wing um reactionary people and one of them whose name is uh bronze age pervert and that's that's his twitter handle it's what he goes by um and that if that doesn't tell you enough about him you know um <laughs> he's basically like this like greek like this larping he's like he's like pretending to be this like, um, as far as I know, I don't even dug too far into it. He's like this, like quasi nudist um, Greek pagan, but not really kind of Nietzschean like personality. <laughs> yeah, he's a poster. He is. He's um, his his art is the art of the post, and he's he's hilarious and um, uh, also very well read and very kind of like uh, he's a he was a I believe a philosophy graduate student or possibly classicist um at Yale and got uh did his doctorate on um on Plato and he uh he's really he's very he's really interesting um he's very intelligent he's very well read um and but what he's doing is kind of trying to make Nietzsche accessible to contemporary a contemporary audience um, and what that means, or what he's drawing from Nietzsche is particularly the kind of uh, Nietzsche's reappropriation of a Homeric, um, Homeric virtue, essentially, which means something quite different than what we would think of as a virtue. Um, uh, Nietzsche was kind of doing something that was very similar to, um, weirdly similar to Alistair MacIntyre, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but he in the sense of like tracing the idea of of virtue back through um back through christianity to platonism and and before and um 
whereas McIntyre kind of ends up in favor, so to speak, of the development, the developed idea of virtue, where it, it is a sort of fully moral um, idea. Nietzsche kind of wants to strip that away and get back to the um, the idea of arete as excellence and the idea of the good as equivalent to the beautiful and um, in, in opposition to not evil, but to the bad, as in the weak, the mm-hmm. ugly, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Bap's sort of take on all this is more or less Nietzsche's take, which is that um, what's wrong with us, what, what Nietzsche felt to be wrong with himself and what he felt to be wrong with everyone else, um, was that we've kind of like allowed ourselves to become corrupted by essentially a Christian vision of the good, um, which saps our strength and saps our energy. And um, especially this is very much aimed um, that even more than Nietzsche is aimed at, is aimed at guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so figuring out like what it means to be a man in a world where manly virtues particularly are kind of pathologized is kind of where this is coming from. And as opposed to, in, in, you know, this is kind of going full opposite. This is going whatever, um, whatever the kind of like pathologization of boys is, is doing um, for our culture. What we need to do is the opposite. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep, I also keep saying we, because, you know, we have this idea as post-Christian people or as Christian, you know, people who are influenced by Christianity, that what is true is true for everyone. And so what, you know, what is needed is what we all need. And that's actually, you know, that's just embedded even in the fact that I kept saying we, and that's very much not the Nietzschean idea. Um, And because there are not, there's not just one kind of person. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of what, what I was, that's some of what I was getting at in, in this sort of addressing that contemporary neo-vitalist um, movement. And the thing, a lot of, um, you know, the thing to understand, or the th- a, a way to get into it is that I don't actually think that Nietzsche was wrong in his, um, if, if Christianity had been what he thought it was, he would not have been wrong. Right, right. Um, it's just, it's not what he thought it was. I, he was reacting very much to a kind of pietistic um, Kantian Christianity where, like, the good is duty, essentially. And it, it almost just seemed to me as though Kant and Nietzsche are two halves of one truth that have fallen apart. And because they're isolated from each other, neither is right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but... It's, and so you get this kind of like fragmented reality where Kant is one half and Nietzsche is the other half and both are kind of messed up without the other half. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess, a beginning way to discuss all of what this ridiculous piece is about. <laughs> well, it kind of reminds me of that Chesterton quote about, you know, it's not the vices necessarily that are the most dangerous, but it's the virtues separated from one another, um, yeah. you know, that become more destructive um and i just butchered that completely but um (laughs) chesterton said something like that i (laughs) um and so yeah you're 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 kind of addressing and your your article isn't it's it's about it's about guys like bronze age pervert 
Um, but it's, it's more than that. It's about the question of, you know, was the pagan world like the ancient, was what's ancient Greece? This, this like, um, this like, uh, amoral sort of like might makes right sort of, um, uh, period of time. And was this, was it this, this age of like vitalism of like of life abundantly? Um, and you kind of, you address that very, very directly. Um, and basically what is, what is your kind of take on that? Um, how do, how do you go about addressing that? Yeah. So, I mean, what, what Nietzsche wanted from Homer, um, which is kind of a lot of what there were various kind of other people who were floundering around, um, dealing with similar issues um, in his time and, and in ours is a kind of sense of they fe- you know, Nietzsche felt a lack of life, a lack of vitality and blamed it in part on um, on Christianity. And as he was as he sort of like attempted in uh, to reaccess that vitality, um, he had this this idea that kind of re-embodying the spirit of the pre-Socratics, like he thought of himself as almost a reincarnation of Heraclitus, <laughs> um, uh, and and particularly uh, the the men of the Iliad and the Odyssey, mm-hmm. um, that would kind of give give him the the life force, give him access to the life force that he felt had been taken from him by contemporary society. And that's very much like um, what I think contemporary vitalists are trying to do as well. They're, they they both feel something in themselves that needs a an outlet. I think they rightly feel that. And mm-hmm. they also feel a lack in themselves that need that they that they need to fill. And so there's this kind of like, what do I do with my thumos? And then where can I get the life that I need? And both of those, they're, they're two separate questions, but they're both attempted to, um, the attempt to answer them is, in both cases, you know, go back, become a man like Achilles, become someone who, um, you know, essentially gives no more thought to your soul than to uh, uh, your appendix, because your soul is not, um, is, is not really you. You don't need to worry about goodness in, in the sense you, you need to worry about making a great name for yourself mm-hmm. um and the problem at that so that's kind of like at least where bab is taking me to but the problem is that's not really what homer that's not the vision that homer had of right. the soul um it's very like homer's approach to all this is very strange and the greek approach to all this changes quite drastically um, from the time of, you know, from what we can tell of the Mycenaeans to the Homeric age, which was, you know, centuries later to um, Plato's age, which was a couple of centuries after that, um, the vision of what the soul is and wh- where we go and what we need changes quite radically. What was Homer's view of the soul? Uh, because in you, you quote heavily a lot uh, from the Odyssey. Um, and you make note that you prefer, and I prefer the Odyssey to the Iliad too, uh, cause it is, it's just more, it's just more like episodic and it's, it's, I, the, I love both, but, um, 
you come from a, a sailing family and, you know, it's like that whole adventure, you know, like trying to get home. It's, it's very, it's very, um, I mean, there's a reason Homer is so, he's huge, you know, <laughs> uh, he's, he's kind of the foundation of, of like almost all poetry in the West. Um, but what was I, what was I going to say now? Um, oh yeah. What was, so Homer, um, uh, it's when Odysseus goes to the gates of Hades, basically, um, and he's trying to communicate with Tiresias, who is um, the prophet for Athena. Is that right? Or Artemis? Um, Can't remember now. But he was, he's one of those prophets, and he's blind, I think, because yeah. he saw one of the goddesses, either Athena or Artemis, uh, bathing. And so he went blind, <laughs> as one does. Um, and so you, you kind of have him go to this realm of the dead and interact with these shades basically um and so kind of what was homer's view of the soul and then how did that change um through through time until you get to like the incarnation sure um well homer thought of the soul the word is psyche and it's the same word as the word for butterfly Mm. and so homer thought of the soul as above all something that was like lightweight Mm -hmm. um it was it's very much and it's kind of like it, it is very Tim Powers, actually. Like the soul is might not make much sense sometimes. Um, it's not really you. Yeah. It's um, it's sort of you. It is. It's and you have like a, a you have a memory of who you were, and um, you know you can interact with your you know eventually Odysseus. Um, you know t- talks to his mother. Yep. Um, and you know, he talks to Agamemnon and he talks to Achilles and Achilles is there. Achilles' soul is there. And that's kind of despite the, the idea that Achilles had had in life of obeying, um, you know, obeying Athena and um, having a short but glorious life, which would lead to something, which would lead to a great name, um, where that finally ends him up is just in Hades with everyone else. Right. So, and he is kind of, he's a king in Hades in some sense. Um, But it doesn't really matter. Like that it's, he's still dead. And the soul is something that is, it's a kind of memory of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And all it does is kind of hunger for Mm -hmm. the, its previous life and hunger for, for, um, you know, grain and wine and blood yep. and the light of the sun and, um, and it grieves and that's kind of all there is to it. There's, there's not, there's no real, there's no future hope. Um, <clears throat> so that was from what we can tell, you know, at least, you know, based on the, the stories that have come down to us through Homer, that was kind of the, um, the Achaean view, the Mycenaean view of, of the soul. Um, and it was, it was certainly Homer's view, but a couple hundred years after Homer, um, it, it actually starts to change. And so this is, you know, um, around 500 years before Christ, you get, um, Plato and and the, the golden age of Athens and Plato, the Eleusinian mysteries have kind of um, kicked in big time by that point. And Plato is very ambiguous about what he actually thinks, you know, about the soul and in fact about a lot of things. Um, but he does 
at least partly indicate some kind of belief in metempsychosis or reincarnation. Mm-hmm. And the idea that um, your soul, there is actually a direction to this, like your soul can get, you know, reborn and increase in education, increase in virtue, and eventually dwell with the gods. So there's a kind of theosis there. Mm-hmm. But that was a quite, quite a new idea um, in, in, Homer, in sorry, Plato's time. And um, obviously, Christianity also has ideas about these things, and as as did Judaism. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's kind of um, the idea that like basically we should go back to um, the Bronze Age. We should go back to the time of Achilles, or or the time of Homer, for that matter, which was many centuries after Achilles, um, because. You didn't need to worry about your soul then because all that mattered was gaining a great name in battle. Um, mm-hmm. And we should throw ourselves into that. This is a bizarre decision <laughs> because, you know, it's not that, it's just not true that the, the men of, um, you know, the, the men that Homer writes about were not concerned with their souls or that they didn't, you know, it didn't matter. They were just gaining a great name. They were extremely concerned with their souls. There's just nothing they could do about them. Right. Um, <laughs> they were they were bummed out that that was yeah. their fate. You know, yeah. let's put it that way. Like they, yeah. if the the you just you know you no matter how great a light you lived, you just end up as a shade in Hades. You know, yeah. and that's that's it. Like you're done. And um, that could like put a damper on your <laughs> view of life. Even yeah. though they wanted something, they had a hunger for more, but they couldn't get it. You know, they they and. I guess the whole the whole like idea of like there was no like you could just live this amoral might makes right sort of attitude. Well, Homer didn't even think that you know Homer like there there is a good you know and there is something to something good to strive for. Um, and you kind of you kind of highlight that too, uh, where you have um, other other philosophers um, who you know, are, are kind of complaining, you're not like complaining, but like, uh, criticizing the men of bronze, you know, people like Achilles who, you know, they're, they're, they're violent and they're, you know, they're arrogant and, um, it's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, Homer, uh, you know, obviously if you're trying to make Homer into like a, an anti-war poet, which some people have tried to do, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. No. (laughs) He's not an anti-war poet. Um, however, he's not a, he's not an unadulterated might makes right. Like he's not Calicles. Right. Um, and so I, I quoted Pindar and Hesiod who, um, who, you know, they're not Homer, but they're sort of also from the same world essentially. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly that basically even before, um, Plato, there is a sense of the good. There is, a sense of the good in a recognizable way and a rejection of the idea that might, might makes right. Mm-hmm. And so you can't, there's, there's no escaping this. And it seems to me that a lot of the, um, what a, a lot of people who've been drawn to Nietzsche and, and Nietzsche himself have wanted to do is use Achilles as a kind of escape from the idea of the good mm-hmm. as something that um, has weight and, also as an escape from a kind of a sense that they have of Christianity as something enervating yeah. um, and something that like saps your life and saps your, your will and makes you into something. Um, and, and, you know, 
basically gets you hooked into a slave morality, which then will prevent you from being your most excellent self um, because you'll just be serving this idea of the, the virtue of weakness right. or something like that. And I, you know, it's a deep misunderstanding of Christianity in some ways, in mm-hmm. some ways it's not, it's just a, a dislike of Christianity, <laughs> but, but in some ways it is a misunderstanding. I think. Well, I think a lot of, I think, I think, and to be fair to both Nietzsche and, you know, BAP, um, they do, like you mentioned this too, they, they have a point, you know, our culture is very much anti-masculine, um, mm-hmm. and that's a huge problem, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they, na- normal masculine traits are, are called toxic and, and, you know, denigrated and men should just be, I don't know, like just worms, I guess, I don't know, um, just not nobody no man should ever do anything ever again um and so they their whole like approach their their whole their complaint is is valid you know and christianity as far as a lot of modern strains of christianity um are concerned it's like it's not helpful you know mm-hmm. um and there is there is something to the that like if you get christianity wrong it is it, it is going to end up life sucking you know because yeah. i think a lot of christians today um, I see this too, you know, you in like Catholic circles, um, the idea of humility um, means something like you just kind of let people walk all over you, you know, mm-hmm. and um, when really humility needs to be tied to mag, uh, I can never say this word, magnanimity. Um, yeah. And that's what saints like I see Joan of Arc had, you know, they did great things and they, they had great skills and, you know, Solzhenitsyn too, you know, like, great writer, great, great man. And they're not like, they wouldn't deny that they have those gifts, you know, but they would say we get them from God, you know, ultimately they derive from God. And that's what humility is. And when you tie it to magnanimity, then you're, you're, you're capable of doing great things while also remaining basically realistic about yourself. (laughs) You know, like I'm still sinful. I'm still, you know, I still have to rely on God and all things, but like, I'm not going to say I, you know, if I'm a professional basketball player, I'm not going to say like, Oh no, I'm not any good. And it's like, well, obviously you're very good. (laughs) Like, um, so it's like, if you, if you lose that magnanimity, you're going to have us kind of a slave morality, I think with Christianity. Um, and I think we do see that a lot in, in Christian circles. Um, and you know, that we just need to, or in the fact that like, we don't ever talk about sin and, you know, (laughs) damnation and all that stuff, you know, that's also kind of problematic and it kind of ties into that. Um, so like their, their critique is valid. I think, you know, it's just like true Christianity is not that it's not you know, just this, you know, you just need to, you know, um, basically just get killed, <laughs> you know? And so there is a kind of um, strain of sort of, I, I'm not quite sure what to call it, but like a, a Christian response to what you're describing, which I think does actually um, end up wanting to, for example, get rid of the Magnificat. Hmm. And does want to, for example, sort of get rid of the idea of, um, you know, following Christ in his death. Right. Necessary. And does want to remake Christianity as something that is um, essentially a a version of paganism, like the folk religion of Europeans or something Mm -hmm. like that. And that is, that also is a misunderstanding. Right. Um, 
I, I it's it's difficult because I think that like my I didn't grow up Christian at all, but my impression um, with all of this is that there are a lot of guys, especially guys who did grow up Christian, who find it incredibly dull and mm-hmm. that was me. Don't, <laughs> Who don't who who are looking for something um, interesting and looking for something that can match their passion and can um, point them towards a way of being themselves that feels full mm-hmm. and the, and Christianity is that but it's that you know it might be free it might be that you need to get there sort of the long way round. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of, it's not, if you're raised Christian and you're kind of like, I I just, I see this so frequently people who are raised Christian and they both on the left and right, like end up being dissatisfied with it Mm -hmm. in some way. And they seem to sort of like expect it to have been handed to them correctly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get what you're saying. And I just, I'm baffled by this because I'm partly I'm baffled by this because I wasn't raised Christian at all. And so like my Christianity is the result of a kind of quest. Mm -hmm. So that seems normal to me. Like you need to go on a quest to find whatever it is, to find the good, to find the, the, your heart's desire. Like, why would you not need to go? Like, why would you think that you just received that? Right. Like, of course you, you know, you know, if you, if if you're not satisfied with what you've been given, you don't have a tantrum about it. You just you, <laughs> you, look, for it, you, you look deeper and you ask for questions. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you, you know, ditch Christianity. It means that you ask more questions. Right. Well, I think that's a really good point because I grew up that way, too, mm-hmm. um, with like this kind of beige Catholicism. You know, everything is very... <sighs> like watered down. I mean, it wasn't like heretical. I didn't have like a, it wasn't like I went to, I went to a Catholic school and it wasn't heretical. I mean, not, not most of it. Um, some of the more like the quote unquote Catholic social teaching, you know, that, that was pretty, eh, it got, it got a little out there, but um, as far as like the actual contents of the faith, it was, it was presented in an orthodox way. It just was not, it was just in a very sort of uninteresting way, you know? And it's like, how much of that do I blame on the school? How much of it is my own fault for not wanting to dig into it more? Um, But viewing, and this is where the Odyssey was really helpful, viewing a life as a quest, viewing, viewing, um, like having the call to adventure, I think is, is missing. I think we, because now, now like I'm, you know, much more observant in my faith and stuff, but there, you still get the sense that, with in in the catholic world everything i mean we have we have doctrinal definitions for a bunch of things you know and like those are all very important and we can't ditch those but you, if you're not careful you get the sense that it's like you got you you have a test with all the answers already filled in you know and like there's nothing else for you to do mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and that's also problematic because it can make us in, well i don't know intellectually uncurious is maybe not the best way to say it but like um I don't know. Like, there's just no, there's just no call to adventure there, you know. Yeah. And you, you, I think we need that. I think we need that that journey, that adventure, the and that can because then when you hit, when you hit with like suffering and trials, you know, it's like then it kind of it helps put it in perspective too. Uh, those those things. So I think having that is something that we really need, and I think stories can help with that. I think 
Um, reading the Odyssey obviously can help with that in the Iliad, uh, but more the Odyssey. And then you can have um, then then you can have this sort of like masculine and feminine sort of balance in your uh, Christianity, you know, because you got to go fight the Cyclops, you know, you got to go, you know, tie yourself to the mast so you don't, um, you don't get lured by the sirens, you know, like you, you have to, like, and that, that makes like a voice, so like, or you could say like, oh, I need to avoid temptation, you know, it's like, well, you could, yeah, you could say it like that, or you could view yourself as Odysseus tying yourself to the mast, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like, it's, it helps to kind of put a poetic spin on things that, you know, we're supposed to be doing and it can make it more exciting. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, making it more exciting is one way. It, it's not, I wouldn't really put it that way. So mm. I, I, it's just very difficult for me to get inside the head of someone who is raised Christian and for whom this Christianity seems boring because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, I just I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. I've seen this and I, right. and I, and I know people like this. And I think that a lot of the attraction to, um, to sort of, and, and to this new Nietzschean stuff is that it's it's guys for whom Christianity is boring, right? But I just feel like you're missing everything if you think it's boring. Oh yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> because you're you're missing everything, mm-hmm. and you know don't don't start from scratch. The, the problem is obviously sometimes people do start from scratch and and they kind of ditch the idea of gentleness as a good or they. Ditch the, <laughs> Right. of like, um, any kind of chivalry and they kind of reinvent Christianity mm-hmm. as that is um, you know fully wolf-like and mm-hmm. um, and entirely amoral and you know you know we have to get back to uh, this vision that they have that they that they think they have of a pre-1945 um, universal Christian, belief system that like lets you be racist (laughs) (laughs) i knew that was going to happen come up come up at some point yeah the whole all the race stuff yeah and like lets you be um warlike yeah well it lets you hate on people and give you an excuse you know it's and and so there's this like fantasy that that um there is christianity there that's like as based as paganism (laughs) yeah and it's just this is like you're missing everything. You're, it's it's like a category missing. error, yeah. you know. It's because yeah. yeah. your whole point in the article is that paganism it was deeply yearning for something, yeah. you know. This yeah. this yearning that was there, you could see it in the shades, you know, in Hades, where they yearn for blood, you know, especially the blood of lambs, you know, um, and and wine, you know, and grain, you know, and that all sounds very familiar, right? Um, yeah. If you're you know, if you believe in the Eucharist. Uh, so it's like, it's, they, they have a yearning for these things. And like, it's just amazing to me that Homer, that Homer, like, I don't know, intuited that, or like that was part of the, the culture or something. I don't know. It, Cause you have these poets who kind of like predict in the coming of Christ in, in a very interesting ways. And I'm more and more convinced that as you know, you go from prehistory to the time of the incarnation, different pagan cultures change to make themselves more ready, you know, to receive the gospel. Um, And I was talking to some uh, Lydia Lay, another guest on the show. She was talking about the Aztec culture. And I asked that question, like, okay, so in the Greeks, you know, you have um, 
I've probably said this before on the show, but it's just very interesting to me. Uh, the Greeks, you know, as time goes on, as you approach the time of the incarnation, they get more and more, like the gods get more, they seem to get more and more humane, uh, more in like the philosophy becomes more and more amenable. You have like Hellenism um, coming in. Is there a similar process with the Aztecs? And she's like, kind of, but they got worse instead of better. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Like she's like, yeah, everything kind of became like a funhouse mirror of Catholicism. And then oh, all wow. they needed was somebody to come in and just flip everything around, basically, uh -huh. which is so interesting. Um, so, like, yeah. every culture, like, kind of, they, they kind of approach it in their own ways. It, it, it's very, yeah, I'm like, so, yeah, everything got worse. <laughs> I thought that was really hilarious. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and I, I don't know. You, you have this whole idea of, like, this pagan yearning. And you, you also cite, like, um, the recurrence of this, the, the natural cycles. Um, and the, 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 uh, what is it called? The Eleusinian mysteries or whatever, um, where you have this eternal, like this cycling of this, like, um, you know, spring, spring will come again. You know, the sun rises again, you know, and like the, the pagans picked up on that. Like, okay, these things don't seem to go away. They seem to come back, <laughs> you know? So what's going on there? Um, and all of that is kind of, I think a foreshadowing of, of the resurrection. Um, and, uh, yes. The heroine yeah. of Hades. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the story, obviously, the, the Eleusinian mysteries are the celebration of um, Persephone's, the cycle of Persephone is going down to Hades and, and returning mm -hmm. um, and bringing back the life of the world with her. So spring comes again. And there is a sense of like, maybe this, maybe this year it'll be different because maybe this year life won't you know, flow out of the world again in the mm -hmm. fall um, and and lead to the winter. Maybe this year it'll just, it'll be, um, life will definitively win. And the story, obviously the story of um, Orpheus and Eurydice, mm -hmm. um, which some of the other thing that I quoted a bunch from in, in the piece was Hades Town lyrics. So everyone <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering I was, what that was from. I was like, what I, is this? I was self-indulgent. I just threw in so much. <laughs> um, but so the, the idea of Orpheus and Eurydice is, um, you know, the idea that like for one, for one couple, um, Orpheus won't let death be the last word. Mm -hmm. And he goes down and he challenges Hades and he almost succeeds mm -hmm. in his bride back and then he doesn't and so there is this sense of like but someone could right it almost it, it almost worked you know if he hadn't done that one thing looking back yeah. it would have worked you know it almost works yeah if he hadn't if he hadn't flinched if he hadn't you know if he if he hadn't you know basically betrayed faith right. with her um because he didn't believe that she was following him um then then it could have worked yep and that's kind of where everyone is mythologically mm -hmm. uh when when christ comes and obviously the interesting thing about all this is that you very frequently um talk about um or one very frequently talks about the way that greek um classical theism greek which is really philosophical rather than theological in a way or, or certainly mythological but greek classical theism and greek philosophy um 
including hylomorphism and so on, are basically, you know, they're waiting, they're, they, they're, you can see God kind of like shaping these things in order mm-hmm. for the gospel to be able to be received, right. even using the proper words, like words that have the right philosophical valence. Right. Um, and it's just fascinating to me that, that this happens with the mythology as well. Yep. Um, and you know, it, it, there's crazy things like, uh, I'm trying to, so, um, in Heracles, in the, uh, in the play Heracles, um, which is the story of the labors of Hercules and then mm-hmm. he comes back from his labors and then he eventually, you know, um, uh, Hera sends a spirit of madness on him and right. he kills his family. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, um, so he's, you know, the son of a, a god and, and, and a human woman. And he's just been on all, you know, through his labors, he like interacts with gods all the time. Mm-hmm. or behaving just as badly as Greek gods always do. Um, and Theseus at some point um, comes to kind of collect him and be like, all right, you, sorry, you've killed your entire family. Let's just kind of, let's move on. Um <laughs> And he, and he, and Theseus basically says to him, um, you know, don't beat yourself up so much. Obviously you did kill your entire family, but the gods behave really badly too. And, um, Heracles says something like, I think not of the gods as committing, as having committed adultery, which is not right, nor is oppressed with chains. I've never thought this worthy, nor ever will believe that one lords it over the others. The God who is indeed a God needs nothing. These are the wretched stories of the bards. Hmm. And so it's just like, you, you've just met a bunch of them. Like, you're, just, <laughs> you're related to them. And you're rejecting them as not really gods because the god who is really a god needs nothing. Like, this is, he goes full classical theist in the yeah. middle of lip, being Hercules. Like, right. how are you going to do that? Um, it's, it's just, it's fascinating to see just all of this, you know, you can see it coming to a head. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, eventually it does. Yeah. Well, I remember in, I think in the Odyssey, mm-hmm. Hercules is in the realm of, no, no, no. Wait, no, I'm thinking of Dante. I think I mean, it might be in Dante where he's in hell. He doesn't, I don't think Hercules has any lines in Dante. Um, and he's just hunting around with his bow. Lines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's like bow. Uh, so never mind. That was, I was like, oh, I think in Homer, you know, <laughs> but that's not, Dante obviously is a Christian. So it's, um, yeah. So, yeah, anyway, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, when did, uh, when was uh, Euripides? Is he a contemporary of Homer he or was, no? He was, no, no, no. He was later. He Much was later. Uh, okay. like four. Let me just look him up. He was like, I want to say four. Oh, okay. He was much, much later. Okay. Yeah. I have not read. See, this is nice too, because then I'm like, okay, I got to read all these things. <laughs> Everything you cite, I'm like, I got to read all this. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. I was pretty close. 480 B. Wow. I'm so impressed with myself. 480 BC to 480 BC. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So you have this changing of the Greek philosophy as Christ approaches uh, through the incarnation. And how, so, yeah, I mean, how, how did Christianity change things? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, that's an easy question. I mean, it's, yeah. it's like, um, <laughs> so easy. I mean, 
Yeah, I, well, I, I, it's an impossible question to answer. <laughs> Christianity changed things because Jesus didn't fail. Right, um, yeah. Like, so everything that, everything that paganism was, had been wrestling with for, you know, 1500 years, um, Greek paganism, Jesus, like, he solved the death problem. Yeah. Like, he solved the problem of death. Yep. So it's kind of a deal. Um, and, you know, he did it in a way that, and he also solved the problem of, of adventure, which is mm-hmm. um, a kind of an interesting other problem, which the Odyssey, I think, is something that speaks to most directly. And, um, you know, you can you can think of that as, uh, okay, Odysseus, and you, you can obviously see this in um, the poem Ulysses, the the one that I quote extensively mm-hmm. in in the piece as well. Um, Odysseus needs to be like in order to have a purpose for his journeys, he needs to be aiming at home. Mm-hmm. But if you actually sort of think about Odysseus um, at home with Penelope and Telemachus you you do start you have a sense of like oh i don't think he'd be he wouldn't totally be cool there because he's he's crafty and he's and he's adventurous and so like it's, and in even in the odyssey itself you get this um weird prophecy that he's going to um he, he's gonna go out adventuring again and this time it's not going to be on the sea it's going to be in the, the kind of um the land sea of the, the great steppe and when he'll know where that he's where he needs to be when somebody thinks that his oar which he's he's brought with him is a winnowing a, a winnowing fan hmm. because they, there'll be people who don't know what oars are and it's this kind of very strange um prophecy of another adventure in on a different sea um that he's going to have to you know, carry out, which, you know, Dante has him do and then be damned for. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, that sort of sense of um, the desire for adventure as well as the desire for home and like, how can those things live with each other? How can, like, how can what we want be satisfying to us? Like that, that's actually the big question. And, and that is the question it's it's not separate actually from the question of Nietzsche's challenge to Christianity, because you know if if your vision of Christianity is you die and then you know you're good, and then if you're good enough, then you die and you get to be good more, <laughs> and right. you know and, and you get to like whatever go to heaven, and then be good there, and being good means avoiding sin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, this is an incredibly unsatisfying, unsatisfying kind of what it is to be human. Right. And, you know, th- so there's something that, um, that's the question at the center of the Odyssey. That's also the question at the center of um, Nietzsche's challenge to Christianity, which is like, how can we have, how can we be striving for excellence and also be at home? How can we be, adventuring and also um be adventuring towards something that is worthwhile and 
that's, you know, that is the, the central challenge of human life. I think like, what could it be that we want? Like, how can we even picture what it is that we want that would be both of these things at once that would be the adventure and the homecoming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that is the gospel. Like that's the, the, the answer to that is this very strange, extremely counterintuitive, um, set of teachings and, and, uh, implications and ideas and sort of things that we don't even know the answer to even now mm-hmm. that is Christianity. I mean, at the St. Paul says, um, beloved, now we are the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So we're now the sons of God mm-hmm. and you don't know what we're going to become. Like there's, there's, very much there's this very strange um center of christianity that is something that's not even yet revealed right yeah and um and you know c.s lewis described it as further up and further in Mm -hmm. kind of perpetual um adventuring and perpetual homecoming that is the sort of the, the future that that we have um in christ yeah so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what <laughs> solving the death problem, which is the big problem, and then solving the adventure problem are really the, um, and solving it in a, in a non, solving it in a way that does not give us all the information that we will have. Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you have this quote here. Um, Christ, through his chivalry, has spoiled our taste for the pure booty-getting adventure leading to a striking death, not because we want less, because we want more. Um, so, in like in the Odyssey, you know, Odysseus could have been contented just raiding coasts and getting booty and money and uh, slaves and um, or staying on uh, Calypso's island, you know, and um, just being an immortal there. Um, but he wanted to go home. And yeah. I think the Odyssey and then I think the Book of Tobit um, Tobit, um, is basically, I heard Tobit, uh, once described as like a microcosm of the gospel, the entire scripture and the gospel story and stuff. Tobit is this, um, he, he goes, you know, and he has to basically rescue a, a bride being, you know, tormented by demons and all of her suitors are killed on their wedding night. And basically he has to, um, listen to the Archangel Raphael and, and I think it's, I, f- I always forget. I've, I've only read the Tobit a couple times, but it, it's called Tobit, but it might be another character who does that. But he basically, it's this, this story of this journey to eventual wedding night and marriage, you know, consummation and, and, you know, defeating the demons in the form that who kill the suitors, you know, every time they try um, to consummate the, the marriage. And it's an, it's a perfect encapsulation of the gospel story. Um, and so I think the way, I mean, maybe I haven't thought about this enough, but like, I think the way to reconcile the home, the homecoming and the adventure mm-hmm. is to live it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think, I don't, I don't know if there's a way to just like, oh, here's my canned phrase, you know, here's my, you know, uh, homespun phrase on how to do that. I think it's, it's, you have to live it. You have to live it out. And that's yeah. what the, the, that's what Christ calls us to do. Yeah. Um, and that's what the liturgy helps us to do. Um, yeah. and 
because it's a story we participate in. And I think that's the only way to do it. You know, I think that's, yeah. there's no way to reconcile it other than living it out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And I, and I think that one of the issues that especially um, evangelical, but maybe Catholic too, mm-hmm. guys have with the insufficiency of what they've been taught is that they've been taught a series of doctrinal truths, yep. um, which are, which they have been told are enough. Yeah, and, that's that's what I was talking about earlier. Yeah, it's like you you're like handed the the test with all the answers already filled in. Yeah. You know, I mean that's and that's we we need to have that information. We need to have yeah. a proper understanding of orthodoxy because uh, obviously we can't get like Christ's nature wrong or like the Trinity yeah. wrong because it's going to lead yeah. to. But the point of, like point of getting that wrong is it'll lead to a way of life that is contrary to Christian yeah. proper Christian living, right? So it's like the whole point of of having the intellectual stuff correct is to live your life better and more properly. Yeah. You know, I think it's orthodoxy leads to orthopraxis or whatever it is, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. And, and it's also, it is a kind of like, it's not just do the same good thing every day. It's you are on, you're on a journey Yeah, and you're on a journey to die well, essentially. Like, right. Your job as a Christian, your primary job is to, you know, is to live and die. Um, imbued with this kind of life mm-hmm. and th- that is like that's not something that you can do by just thinking right um and it's not something that you can do like it's not a question of getting the answers to a theology test right right it's it's much more like a journey which is why things like pilgrim's progress are you know you obviously you you have the bible and the catechism as kind of handbooks in a way like manuals on your journey but they're not the journey itself Mm -hmm. the journey itself is you starting exactly from where you are and stepping out of your front door and starting starting on that quest right and it it's frustrating to me because i think so many of the the guys who are sort of um i guess intrigued by sort of this neo-vitalism stuff are intrigued by something like they should be intrigued. Mm -hmm. It's just that that, like there is something else than what they know. It's just that they, they can't like following that particular um, set of voices is not going to lead them to where to, to where they need to be it's, right. it's just that's not the path there is a path um and and they need to be on it right but they need to get it right um in order even for those promises to be satisfied right well i'm gonna butcher chesterton again i think but he he said something like um like uh when it comes to pleasure um something like once he understood once he properly ordered himself the like instead of like drinking too much beer or smoking too many cigarettes like when it when it's in moderation like they're better like you enjoy them more you know when they're proper those like loves are properly ordered to a higher spiritual good you like enjoy them more you know like you get more out of them and when you're not just like indulging them constantly you know and it's it's like you have to and it's i think what what is appealing to guys and me you know with this neo neo pagan vitalism stuff is there is an element of like um uh of discipline there you they're, they're and then i think that's attractive 
to men because we want to make ourselves better. You know, we want to be healthier. We want to be stronger. We want to be smarter, you know? So we want, we want like to do these things, but what's the point? What's the goal? You know, like, yeah. and that's, that's where I think it falls off the rails. Um, because if you listen to Nietzsche or like, you know, um, Bronze Age Pervert or these guys, it's like, the point isn't a Christian point, <laughs> you know? And so like, what are you doing all these things for? Well, so it's to achieve glory. It's like, well, what's that for? Like, for what? For what? Like, you're just gonna die, and nothing's gonna matter. You know, it's it's. There's no point to it. So why would I want to do any of that? Why wouldn't I just want to indulge every vice yeah. that I have, um, and just do whatever I want? You know, that's what I don't get about about like atheists and stuff. Like on one level, I kind of understand them because I kind of was one a little bit. But I'm like, okay, if there's no ultimate point to anything, why do anything? Why why would you even want to? Why would you want to put in the work to to get a job and and have a family and like and, uh, to be fair a lot of people don't <laughs> so it's like but people who they they like want to have it both ways you know they want to have uh, a meaningful life but they don't want to engage with the source of all meaning you know um yeah. so it's it's like you can't have it both ways you got to pick one <laughs> yeah yeah I think that was my experience of of not being raised christian being raised essentially atheistic mm-hmm. um was just you know you you have an existential crisis when you, as soon as you start to think about it, because yeah. like, what is the point? What, what is the point of, um, what's the point of making a decision? What's the point of, right. who cares? Yeah. What's the, what's the point of pleasure? What's the point of like, if there's not something, because every pleasure, you know, and I'm very much an Epicurean. I, you know, I, I have a sort of very intense, um, sense of beauty mm-hmm. and, I can remember, and you know, and I perceive this stuff, and and I can remember sort of like, um, you know, seeing beauty, seeing beauty in, I'm you know, I'm a native New Yorker, seeing beauty in my city, mm-hmm. um, or seeing beauty in um, in the ocean. You know, we have a country place in Connecticut, and and it seems like it's pointing at something. That's not it, um, because. It, it, it calls a kind of desire out of you mm-hmm. sort of satisfies it, but it doesn't really. Right. It, I mean, it's what, it's what Lewis called Sanzuks, which is this sort of yearning and that sense of yearning, um, you know, that's, that's what the gospel points towards the satisfaction of. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that kind of like pure, like even pure pleasure, if it's not, the, if it's not a, a sort of um, reception of the good, which is the source of all pleasure, mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to be enough. Right. And right. you're always going to know that it's not enough. Yep. And then you have a mental breakdown, you know, if you're yeah. consistent <laughs> enough in your beliefs, you know, and that's, nobody wants that, but uh, yeah. it can be helpful to get people on the right track, I guess, you know, yeah. it gives them a chance to say, okay, is there more than this? Is this everything? Um, or is, is there something to this whole God thing, you know? Um, and I think, I don't know, like, I just, I, to me, I'm like, okay, if there's no God, there's no point, you know? So why, why do anything that's, you know, I'm like, I don't get people who can just kind of live life like that, you know, without it, without trying to struggle with that question of, is there a God or not? Um, and if there is a God, you know, what did he do? (laughs) You know? And it's like, and then you start getting into, okay, well, the incarnation, you know, the death, the death has no sting, you know, and all that stuff. So 
One thing, so to kind of change gears a little bit, one thing that you point out, and this is something that I, it's a, you didn't do this, is that you, you, well, you didn't, you, you didn't make it a pet peeve, but like, um, I have a pet peeve that I think, I think affects Christians more than we think. Um, the idea of the phrase, the gates of hell will not prevail, right? Yeah. And I think most people, I think most Christians, if they're observant Christians and they, they know that line, they view that as a defensive thing. Like the, the church yeah. is defensive against the gates of hell, right? Uh-huh. And my pet peeve is that that's actually not what that means. Um, yeah. And you you point that out in here. And then like uh, Father Mike Schmitz has pointed that out. And like uh, Michael Heiser has pointed that out, you know, like, yeah. and it's like, no, that's not what that means. The yeah. gates, gates don't attack people. <laughs> gates, <laughs> gates keep, keep things in or out. Right. So, and um, when Christ says the gates of hell will not prevail, he means against him. He's coming. Yeah. He's coming. Yeah. He's kicking down the gates. You know, they're made of brass, so they're not that strong, you know, and so he he, he kicks the, the gates in and he lets the captives go, right? He, he rescues the, and so death, death is stingless. Yeah. And I think, I hear this all the time in like homilies and stuff, like, oh, the heats of hell shall not prevail. It's like, we're being attacked and we got to have this fortress mentality and we, we, yeah. we, I have just hunker down like ticks, you know, like, and just, it's probably not a, a, not an appealing, I shouldn't say that. No, never mind. But, <laughs> but you know, it, that's kind of what I feel like. I'm like, I'm just going to hunker down and I have to just avoid sin and I just have to just get through this and white knuckle, white knuckle the Christian life as much as possible. And, you know, obviously we need to avoid sin and we need, we do need to struggle sometimes. Obviously white knuckling it is sometimes what you got to do, but but I think it all hinges on the understanding of that phrase, you know, like this whole, like how to, how to live it out. And I see, I hear, I hear it in Catholic circles all the time. And it's like, that's not what that means. Yeah. <laughs> like, Christ, yeah. Christ, we need to be like Christ. And the St. Paul says like, um, Christ is going to crush the serpent through us. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, he says, you know, what he says to, to Peter is, um, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Yeah, Hades even says Hades. Yeah, against <laughs> it. And so that's, I mean, it's it, obviously he is the one who is, um, you know, attacking those gates of Hades. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also through his church, and that is right. that is like, you know, you you want a kind of like to do list item, attacking the gates of Hades and successfully <laughs> battering them down. Right, isn't isn't a bad one. Um, <laughs> tie, tie on the list, right? <laughs> yeah, tie on the list. It's, you, you do get these wonderful like icons, especially in the Eastern tradition mm-hmm. of Christ um, battering down the gates of Hades. Right. And, you know, sometimes there's this one that has like the devil kind of squashed under them. Yeah, that's my favorite. The door, the door like crushes him, yeah. you know, and he's just, yeah. it's like the wicked witch's feet, you know, sticking out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's leaving out Adam and Eve um, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and everyone else, you know, all of the, you know, brides and unwed youths and old men who had suffered much and girls with their tender hearts freshly scarred by sorrow and great armies of battle dead like that whole sense that you get in in the odyssey of like oh just humanity like humans the 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 armies of the dead who are like they're deeply human and Mm -hmm. and christ is rescuing he's just he went on a rescue mission right and seated and there's, and it's a rescue mission that we, you know, according to what he said to Peter, we have a part in as the church. Right. Um, and that's really strange. And that's not kind of what you normally hear about. Um, right. At least, you know, I, as I understand it, it is not a normally 
kind of Christian. Language. No, even in like, so I, I attend like the the traditional Latin mass and stuff. And we even have that there too. It's like this idea. And that's, it's actually pretty prevalent there. Like you just got to hunker down and like, that's my impression of it. Maybe I'm misreading the homilies and mishearing them or something, but like, I just get that sense that like, okay, we just need to white knuckle it, you know? And like, you just got to get through it. Remember that God loves us. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's like, it's true. It's true, but it's not enough. You know, I, I always thought that was like kind of unsatisfying. Um, but then you have this image of Christ kicking down the gates, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and then we're called to participate in that as well. And um, I'm like, well, how the heck do we do that? <laughs> you know, like, how do we do that? I don't, I don't know. I, I keep thinking. Um, there's a quote from Saint Moses the Black, who's a, one of one of my favorite saints. Um, and it, I think it has something to do with this. He says, um, I'm going to butcher this quote too. But he said, uh, you you fast but Satan does not eat. You know, you stay up, but Satan does not sleep. The only thing we can outcompete Satan is in humility because he's not humble. So, um, and he, and St. Moses, the black, he, for those who don't know, he, um, was a, I think he might've been Ethiopian. I can't remember, but he, he was black. Um, and he, um, was a bandit Lord and he was, he like was fleeing justice and, uh, he stumbles upon this monastery and uh, they they take him in, they hide him, but on the condition that uh, I think he has to he has to confess his sins. I think I think that's yeah. how it went. Um, and so he becomes a, a monk, basically. And he's this huge dude, really really huge. Um, and he uh, one day he's like a monk, and um, these bandits attack you know the monastery, and he beats them up and ties them up, and then they all become monks too. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's he's amazing. He's an amazing saint. And so he's just this huge. It'd be like if. Um, if like who's like a contemporary huge like muscly guy who would like convert who like would convert to Christianity? Um, what was that? The Rock. The Rock. Maybe like yeah, like The Rock or like it'd be like if somebody who also was like a criminal, you know, and like converts to Catholicism and becomes like or Orthodoxy and becomes like a monk, and then he just like you know has all this like worldly wisdom and but also this spiritual wisdom and i don't know it's just like that idea is very compelling i think that kind of ties into the whole masculinity problem you know because we we kind of have this idea of monks some of us maybe have idea of monks as like you know like the how disney kind of portrays them sometimes like as fat and you know kind of um you know the fat friars and like um but really like you have monks like say moses the black or or priests like say maximin colby or like um Padre Pio, who, you know, who just like these really masculine guys, but also have like intense Marian devotions, you know? So it's like, (laughs) um, so I think that, I think that those guys somehow solved that problem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because they also lived in the modern, not not St. Moses the Black, but like Padre Pio and and Max McCauley, they were 20th century guys, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I just, I just love St. Moses the Black. He's really, he's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we've really, I mean, this is this, this article you wrote, it says it's 67 minutes long. And I think we've been talking more than that. So I think that's pretty good. Um, one, oh, one, one thing I want to touch on is like these, these guys like Nietzsche and Lothrop Stoddard, who is, um, was a, I, he was another racist guy from the 20th century and really into eugenics and stuff. And then, and then like H.P. Lovecraft, you mentioned him too. Mm-hmm. All of these guys, were like sickly, you know, yeah. they had all of these like, um, or they're neurotic in some way, yeah. you know, they had all of these like kind of yeah. neuroticisms and sickly f- physiques and stuff that you kind of point out that they, they want 
they they look they look at like these Achilles and like all these like Bronze Age heroes as like libations for their souls. You know, I think yeah. you mentioned that like to to sacrifice them them to themselves to prop them up and give them life. You know, and that was a really interesting way to to look at that. Yeah, I mean, Stoddard was not you know Nietzsche and Lovecraft were both kind of physically. Okay. Stoddard, as far as I know, wasn't. Okay. But there is, but there is this sense um, among kind of that there's a particular sort of set of kind of um i would say like there's this kind of like uh herbert spencer fan um kind of people who in the early 20th century late late 19th and early 20th century just had this sense of like america as be becoming overrun by like italians and irish right yeah um, and um and like the the old wasp elite were kind of like losing their fecundity and losing their 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 will, and um, there's this sense of just like it, it was the first generation that really had their imaginations formed by Darwinism. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and they really kind of took it hard, <laughs> and and they and they really felt like outcompeted by um, especially the the new. Um, sort of Ellis Island Americans. Yeah. And um, obviously this is not, you know, Nietzsche's story because he was not American, but like very much Stoddard and um, Madison Grant as well. And mm-hmm. and then Lovecraft. Oh yeah. Lovecraft big time. Yeah. But, you know, there are a lot of um, people like this where it was just like this sense of like, um, we are greater, you know, we Anglo Americans are, are, are greater. Um, and yet, there's something wrong with us mm-hmm. and we're kind of like enervated yep. and this other batch of, of new immigrants, you know, with their, with their Catholicism and their like massive numbers of children <laughs> yeah. are, are going to swamp us. Yep. And so there's definitely that kind of like um, vibe to, I think a lot of this, um, which is just, you know, I'm, it's just interesting. It's striking. Yeah. Well, I, I then Lovecraft, he lived for a while in New York and yeah. he, um, he had a kind of a love hate relationship with New York. Um, yeah. and he actually described like the immigrants in very grotesque detail. Right. Yeah. Um, and Lovecraft was an interesting guy because he, um, yeah, he was very racist, but he, <laughs> his racism was like very abstract, you know? And it, once he got to know, somebody he liked them you know he actually married a jewish girl like he he you know he's yeah that, that's amazing yeah and like he met cubans and he's like oh cute they're, they're really nice people you know i want to go to cuba now you know, like he he it's like if he just had more friends <laughs> you know and if he just had like a little bit more because he his i don't think his his dad went insane and so it was just his mother and grandfather who raised him um and his grandfather died when he was a young age so he had like no almost no like male role models in his life growing up it was just his mom and his sisters his mom was very overbearing um there is his aunts i mean not his sisters his, his mom and his aunts and they're all kind of overbearing you know this over this like intensely overbearing female presence um with no like male counterbalance it'd be the same if like you just had men and no women you know you'd be kind of screwed up um and so he like kind of had i don't know he just had this um and it's like physique too. He was very, very sickly. And but he, like once he got to know you, even if you were like Irish or Italian or Jewish or whatever, like he usually liked you. You know, <laughs> it's just weird. It's like he had this sort of 
I don't know. Like, that's why I think his, his racism was very abstracted and it was all kind of in his head as opposed to like, he actually had time, you know, and he, there was some of that too, where he lived in New York and he had some experiences with immigrants and he didn't like it very much. Um, but it's like, you get him one-on-one and like, you just say, Hey, you know, I'm Jewish or I'm Cuban. And it's like, Oh, that's great. I'm Lovecraft. Oh, nice to meet you. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. I don't get the same impression with like Lothrop Stoddard, <laughs> but I haven't read too much about his biography. So I don't know. But, um, it's like fr- friends don't solve all your problems, but like they can help, you know. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's very interesting. So um, I guess I got one more question for you. It's, um, unless you have, any, you have any final thoughts or anything about what we talked about. Um, no, I mean I'd I'd love I, I I do feel like we only kind of touched on the begin the little bits of this piece, and I would you know I'm always hoping for I, it would just be great if anyone wanted to um, contact me after they've read it. I would be very interested to know what you guys think yeah um and uh and yeah i'm just i'm always interested to get in touch with people who are interested in these kinds of things so mm-hmm. you know um please reach out i'm on twitter at at suzania s-u-z-a-n-i-a um and uh yeah i'm fairly friendly <laughs> you are very friendly um and I, I my my hope with this was to just provide like an introduction to the article um and i think we did i think we did that i think that was fairly successful um and so yeah it was really really so it's on mere orthodoxy and it's called um i have to go back to the title uh the birth the birth of comedy yes thank you um and like i said it is nicely broken up into sections so you can read the sections um and yeah, so I have one more question for you, Susanna. Um, this pot, and if you've listened to the show before, I don't know if you have, but um, I asked this for all new guests. Um, the show is called "I Might Believe in Fairies," um, and I am personally, I say I'm agnostic about their existence of fair, of the existence of fairies, but um, I don't know, they're probably real. But uh, I want to know, Susanna Black Roberts, do you believe in fairies? Um. Uh... I so the closest might be <laughs> that I think there might be um, I think there might be sort of like lower level angels of some kind or mm. lower level spiritual beings that are in charge of different aspects of nature. Sure, which like angels is obviously like that's a sort of job description rather than a kind of ontological description, um, but. It, as in terms of fairy fairies, I, you know, John Milbank has this thing about sort of morally neutral um, spirits. Mm-hmm. I, I, I am iffy. I'm iffy. <laughs> I will. I do. I have written a fairy tale. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. I can send to you as well. Yes, please do. Link in the in the show notes as well. Um, I'm agnostic. Yeah. Fair enough. I think, I think there are spiritual beings that are in charge of aspects of nature. Yeah, I have a hard time believing in the neutrality argument, you know. Um, but there's a theory that, you know, a third of the angels were neutral in the war, right. you know, of heaven. And so, like, they're the ones who... I think Tim Powers uses that in Declare, too. Like, the, the yeah. jinn are these kind of quasi-demonic yeah. beings, you know. Um, they're fallen angels, but they only fell to earth and not into hell, you know, or something like right. that. Yeah. And so they're still evil, right? Like, they're still evil. Um, 
but they their their destiny is tied with the earth and once the earth is renewed they're gone you know and they won't survive which is really it's compelling i think it's interesting but i don't know if i believe it (laughs) i think they're either i think they're either like you said they're probably angelic lower level angelic beings in charge i think i fully believe that like there are angelic beings in charge of different aspects of the cosmos um you know like the idea of the east wind and the west wind and the north wind you know i think those are you know and there are angelic beings that that um monitor that and and keep that keep that running you know um but as far as like are there is this third class of of beings out there yeah i don't know i mean i'd be i'm open to it but (laughs) awesome well this has been a lot of fun and yeah anytime you want to come back on we can dive into more different aspects of this essay if you want or um whatever else um i am i'm open and hopefully this will go out tomorrow i'm going to try to work on this tonight and get it out tomorrow so well thanks so much for having me on this is a total blast and uh yeah i'll i will also send you a link to my fairy tale yes please do i'll include that in the show notes and then i'll have the um the the link for the mirror orthodoxy thing and i'll put it in a plow uh, magazine link as well and um yeah this is a lot of fun (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much aaron thank you for listening to this episode of i might believe in fairies please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts please follow me on twitter at aaron erber and like me on facebook If you're excited to see where the podcast is going and want to offer some support for the project, you can find me on Patreon. Music is by Alexander Nakarada, and podcast art was designed by my wonderful sister-in-law, Linnea Kisby. Until next time, talk to you soon.